Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Good evening, good evening, and uh, welcome to tonight's program. We are excited to have you with us this evening. If you like what you hear, if you like the program, make sure you share it. Tell us that you like it and tell a friend to, to check us out. I see Dr. Lenore is here chomping at the bit, ready to go. Mm-hmm. So we are excited to have a, a big, big program for you tonight. Tonight is all about being a Black father. So I'm really excited as a Black father. I am very, very excited to have this discussion and lean in and really talk about what that means and what the ramifications are and how this country sees Black fathers and the narratives that have been created about what we do and how we are involved in our children's lives. But first, as you know, we always have uh, Dr. Lenore here, and we have a little brief conversation about COVID. So, Dr. Lenore, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm good, and I want to mention to people that I, uh, in addition to our Facebook Live program, we, we have a podcast, and the podcast will have some of the same issues that we talked about on Black Fathers. So look for the podcast on BlackDoctors.speak. I, I thought we'd start out our conversation with always with what's going on with the coronavirus. Uh, obviously, uh, people are getting vaccinated, uh, and uh, the, the incidents of deaths, hospitalizations are going down. But Alice, what I find most disturbing in my own practice is that while we have found that older African-Americans have gotten vaccinated, younger African-Americans between the ages of 20 and 35 are increasingly not getting vaccinated. And they have all kinds of reasons. There's a chip in the thing. They've been looking at Instagram. They're, they they feel that they're gonna somebody's gonna come into their homes. Uh, they feel that there's not enough research done. So there are lots of excuses. But we have a real challenge. And now we have an opportunity to vaccinate children down to the age of 12. And by the fall, I think we'll have an opportunity to vaccinate children down to the age of two. But if African American parents of children adolescents, children, or infants are not going to get vaccinated, we're going to have a real problem. And I think that's what really bothers me right now. So I don't know exactly what our strategy is going to be. The African-American Wellness Project, in partnership with BlackDoctor.org, is going to keep this information in front of you. You know, over 1.3 billion people have been vaccinated across the world with almost zero safety issues. Now, if you need more information than that, to make a decision, you can't get out of bed in the morning. And so consequently, we have to kind of deal with that. There were some incidents this week or some discussions this week about something called myocarditis. That means inflammation around the heart that might be associated with the vaccine in children. But once they looked at the data, there's no more increased incidence of, of myocarditis of the heart in patients who have been vaccinated children between 12 and 16 as there is in what we call the placebo group, the children who have not been vaccinated. So those are really two issues that we're really concerned about. I'm really concerned about the, what I've heard from my own patients. Nine out of 10 of the young mothers between, with children between the ages of 12 and 16 are not planning to get vaccinated themselves and not planning to get their children vaccinated. And that's, that's somewhat disturbing. Yeah, I, I think it's still, um, I, I'm always going to go back to the 
A, two things. One, the water has been muddied uh, significantly at the beginning, right? And so how something is introduced to you is really how you're going to perceive it. And so because of the previous administrations, uh, kind of the way they approached the whole uh, virus itself, uh, trying to downplay it, and then the way they tried to overstep uh, the medical professionals, infectious disease professionals, and just and, and, and inject more feeling than fact, um, that's what we're seeing now play out now. Even today, as we're getting more facts out there, people are still interjecting their feelings. The second thing I would say is that I, I think that, um, you know, people seek affirmation over information. And so if you already had some fears, if you already had some concerns, you're more likely to hold on that one nugget of information that affirms those fears versus the millions, as you just stated, the billions of pieces of information that disprove any fears that you might have. And so as a, as a vaccinated person, I can say all day long to somebody, hey, look, I took the vaccine. I haven't had any adverse effects. Uh, I went in and I feel a lot more comfortable. But if they feel, if they find that one website that or that one video that says there's some concerns or there's, there's magnetic, you know, as I saw one video where the guy was putting a magnet on his arm, a piece of plate on his arm and all this sort of stuff. And they'll share that because that affirms their fears. And so we've got to make sure that that uh, I, I think we have to speak the language. And I think we also have to understand that um, people need to look to their friends and neighbors and see how they're getting vaccinated and they're not having adverse effects and use that as evidence versus even what the government's saying. Look at your friends and family that are getting vaccinated and let them tell you. You know, now we have a chance to give the Black perspective on one of the controversies involved in the virus. Now, uh, the controversy is where did the virus start? Did it start with bats and, and things in the marketplace, or did it start uh, as a uh, uh, as a escape virus from the incident in, in Wuhan? Now, you know, it, it seems to me, from the back perspective, you no, know, nobody's asked for this perspective. It seems to me that it's awful, it's awful coincidental that the virus would start three way three doors down from the Institute. And so my feeling is that there needs to be a lot more investigation. You know, always when they talk about these viruses, they make native people look like savages because they eat bats and other things, monkeys and some right. with, with the SARS virus and the Ebola virus. But I mean, when you have a virus that starts down the street from your house, you know what I mean? It seems to me that the first place you look for a, a problem with the virus is at the house three doors down. And so I don't think that that, uh, I don't think that that has uh, been actually played out. I think from my perspective, it seems to me more likely that this virus was escaped from the uh, Viral Institute. And that, that's, uh, since nobody else is taking uh, you know, control of this philosophy, I, I don't know, what do you feel, uh, Mr. Dean? I, I think, uh, I, I, you know, if I'm being completely transparent, my first thought when the virus was, uh, when, when we started learning about the virus, that was my first thought. It was like, you know, the, the best way to take out a, a foreign entity is through uh, attacks on their on their populace, right? To to a virus like that. So I was, I had, a, I have my own conspiracy theories. Uh, but then, as I started learning more and more about it. My stance is, is this, um, it's here now, 
right? And so we can talk about the origins. I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of it because the Chinese government has been notoriously tight-lipped when it comes to uh, anything that makes them possibly look bad. And so uh, I don't think that they're ever going to give the full data and information. So if we spend our time focusing on trying to get that data, we're spending less time and mental energy on really fighting the, the virus that's out there, that, that's here, that's amongst the world right now. It's, it's all over the world. And so, uh, yes, I do have some concerns. Yes, I do have some, some, some theories about you know, the virus origin. However, I'm not going to spend my, my time and energy worrying about that because right now it's there and I'm, my energy is going to be spent on protecting my family, protecting my, my, my community, and protecting my country. And so that, that's where my energy is focused. Well, that's a noble, that's a noble point of view. Um, my, my feeling is that there are certain instinctive things that I think African Americans have. We're right. very pragmatic people. The virus starts down the street from your institute, you know, and you're dealing with the virus. Uh, it just seems to me the the problem. Here's here's the perspective I have. If in fact this virus can escape and do this much damage around the world, we need to start to have a more global response to these viruses and to the kind of research that people are doing. Uh, it just doesn't spill over into the virus. It also spills over into genetic mapping and, you know, and genetic engineering. So there are lots of things that we should talk about in the future, but uh, you have it your way, I have it mine. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I think there's definitely some implications later on. I think there's definitely some implications that we have to look at, and there has to be more transparency from uh, across the board and it's got to be a multinational uh, yeah. transparency when it comes to these situations. Yeah. But you know, yeah. but these people been these people been eating these bets for years, and they never had a virus like this. So, consequently, uh, that's the last thing. I don't think it requires any more discussion. But I do think that uh, it does warrant some surveillance on what the science says and what people are saying. Uh, and finally, ultimately, I think, as I've heard one scientist say, we will really know. So let's move into the more important part of our discussion. Let's talk about fatherhood with Dr. Macheo Payne. Uh, do you want to introduce Dr. Payne, uh, Mr. Dean? Oh, you got it. You got it. All right. Mr. Payne is the Executive Director of Community and Youth Outreach, Reducing Gun Violence through Transformation Mentoring. Dr. Payne has taught uh, in an MSW program at Cal State East Bay for the past 10 years and also a partner in the California Children's Trust an effort aimed at increasing mental health access for California's children. Dr. Payne is a content expert on addressing disparities among African-Americans and students of color in schools and other social systems. He's led the Oakland Freedom Schools program for 20 years, effectively serving black families and communities. He has 25 years of experience as a skilled trainer and facilitator and as a social worker with clinical experience, Mr. Macheo has over 10 years of experience training clinicians on how to provide mental health and behavioral health to support the individuals and groups. A graduate of UC Berkeley, Macheo also holds an MSW from Cal State University East Bay and a doctorate in educational leadership from San Francisco State University. He lives in Oakland with his two teenage sons. Macheo, Mr. Payne, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Payne. Thank you, you know, for having me. Forgive me if I didn't put that doctor in there. Welcome to our program. Thank you. I want to ask you the obvious question. 
uh, what makes you the an expert, not an expert, but uh, certainly uh, a more informed uh, uh, educator uh, on Black fatherhood? So being a father actually is what led me to uh, advanced degrees and learning the clinical side of social emotional learning and development for children. Uh, but being a black man myself and being a father and having <clears throat> the lived experience of experiencing fatherhood through my father and then through practicing being a father, you quickly learn the um, challenges of fatherhood are at each stage of childhood. And so I took it upon myself to uh, learn about how to improve certain areas, but I would, I would basically say that I'm still learning and that the more you focus on uh, the broad expectations of fatherhood these days, um, you actually are able to um, realize that it's, 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 a, it's an unreal set of expectations. And so what we have to do is do the best that we can from where we are and, and focus on what we know best, which is uh, the learning process and trying to get better each day. In your experience as a, as a Black father, as someone who talks to other people about fatherhood, what do you think the elements of a good father are? So the traditional roles of fatherhood are still there, right? So being a provider, uh, protector, uh, that is still the expectation. And these days, um, gender roles have a lot, a lot of the gender roles have been flattened. And so fathers also are uh, more and more being emotionally available, not just uh, paying bills and, and, and being physically in the same house, but being there when they're ready to have conversations and talk about different things. So it really has been something that there is an expanded role, especially with moms being in the workplace and out in the world as well um, and needing space and time to be uh, developed themselves in, in different ways as well. The role of parenting itself has kind of placed on the mom the role of both the father and the mother, and sometimes also on the father as taking on the role of the traditional roles of both the mother and the father. You know, my, my experience, of course, is like so many old school OGs, as they say. My, my dad, uh, you know, he talked to us occasionally, uh, but there was no sitting on the lap sharing, you know, my feelings with my father. You know, he, he came home, you know, he, he had, you know, a glass of vodka, you know, he tried to get home late so he wouldn't have to eat with us, you know, and, he, and there was never really any discussion mm -hmm. about uh, any either uh, what I was doing, how I was, where I was going, limit setting. None of that happened. He was, uh, you know, he, my mother was obviously, like so many uh, parents, she kind of ran things day to day, but he stepped in whenever there was an issue. Uh, and there was really no dialogue uh, between my father and I, and uh, you know, at, at some point, I didn't care. Uh, so what is the difference now between parenting then and parenting now? Right. So back then, that wasn't an expectation for your father 
to sit and instruct you on all the different ways of the world. Maybe he told you, hey, you stay out, you know, stay out of the way. These 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 young folks that are acting up maybe told you to go to college or, you know, be respectful. That was about it. These days, society is way more complex. Parents are expected to be on top of their children's activities. We have screens. The children have access to information, images, stories, news, everything. I remember growing up, I never knew what happened to Richard Pryor because I was a little kid. Nobody would tell me, right? And so now the kids know everything. And so as parents, it really is upon us to have these conversations to find out where our kids are at. It has gotten increasingly important to be able to get into the, the mind and the life of the child, whereas in, in previous generations, that wasn't as necessary. You know, you're bringing up an interesting point. And I said, but it, just like back then, like with my parents and my grand, grandparents, the, when the child is born, they don't come with an instruction manual. Right. And today, they don't still don't come with an instruction manual, but we've got more challenges as a parent to deal with. So are there some ways or some areas or some resources that parents can, that particularly black fathers can reach out to, can lean into to be able to be better equipped to deal not only with, with parenting properly and differently um, versus um, also, you know, to parent properly, but also to be able to uh, meet the challenges that they're facing today. Yes. So I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I spoke at the Alameda County Father Corps, Fatherhood Corps Summit. They had the first annual in 2019 and had been doing work for years up to that point to have the summit. So Alameda County First Five has a Father's Corps that has a yearly summit and has a lot of men that are actually staffed in the county system and many of them fathers um, working with the Father Corps to bring in more, more activities. There's uh, uh, books written by Black father, fathers. Um, there is uh, other scholars who also have written about fatherhood. Um, and so I put some of the links in the chat. And I just recently discovered there is a Black female fatherhood scholars network. So you have Black women that have organized and said, yeah, we know we're not men, but we are in partnership with men and we will step in to provide a platform and continue the discussion. Uh, they actually had a seminar earlier today on Black fathers and depression, and it was a really good session. So I encourage uh, parents or, uh, you know, fathers or mothers uh, we also want to recognize there are father figures in people's lives. We have um, gender is not is is a lot more fluid and is not as straightforward um, as we believed it to be in previous generations. And so we have resources that can also speak to same sex households or or um, uh, non binary gender identities. But with respect to Black male fathers, we have also a fatherhood scholar network. And again, that's in the chat box. And so there are a lot of black men, particularly in the Bay Area, organizing around black male responsibility, 
in fatherhood. And it, it really is something that can be open for everyone to contribute and be a part of. It's not just for Black men. So I was happy to see the Scholar Network um, being organized by women. And so the resources are out there and we have to look for them. Um, but we also have to look to create create our own, like this show and, and many others, as, as well as the Scholar Network. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just tons of opportunities to create spaces to continue to have these conversations. Dr. J.O. Payne is our guest. He's Executive Director of Community Youth Outreach. He is talking about Black Father. Let's kind of get into the nitty gritty. That's another yeah. old school expression you probably haven't heard much. But you know, what should when should Black fathers start to get involved, and what are the important issues that Black fathers need to share with their children? So it's really important these days for folks to have uh, emotional intelligence um, as men, and we need to be able to communicate emotions and have emotional communication. Um, there are some studies that correlate, right, that the violence uh, and, and danger that men experience, uh, partly because of the lack of emotional range being developed or being expected of men. And so we know as parents, right, that your, your child, your, your boy or girl child will mimic different aspects of, of both parents. And so as a father, we have to mimic and uh, demonstrate communicating our emotions. So the difference, uh, Dr. Lenore, maybe from, from your upbringing where, you know, a kid messed up and it was like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you listen? If I have to tell you this one more time, da 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 da, -da right? It's a directive. Nowadays, it's emotional communication. You'd still be upset. They didn't do what they're supposed to do. It's more like, wow, that was disappointing. I had asked you to do this, but you weren't even, you didn't take the time to do it. So what can we do to fix this? Because I don't want to have to keep repeating myself, right? Speaking, actually talking through, right? As the parent, wow, this is what I wanted. And now I'm kind of frustrated. Now I kind of feel like I want, right? And just literally talking out loud how you feel in relation to your child gives the child an opportunity to learn how to do things as opposed to, uh, basically cowering and hiding when 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 they don't have their stuff together. Well, what evidence do you have that your system works better than the system that my parents had? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking around. Wait, I'm looking around. People killing yeah. each other. I'm looking uh -huh. around. Increasing crime, decreasing academic performance. I mean, I'm trying to understand. You know, uh, what what evidence do you have that mm -hmm. that makes a bigger difference mm -hmm. than my father just saying, "Look, boy." If you don't, you don't do this, you know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm trying to understand how, how that, where, where the evidence is that, that that makes a bigger difference than what mm -hmm. my parents did. That's a, that's a great question. And what, what I can tell you, doctor, is I have more evidence that the other method absolutely doesn't work, okay? So instead of giving you proof, that this, right, you, you know, social, emotional, uh, approach, softer approach actually works. My experience has been that, you know, if you, if you, if you have to beat a child, if you have to yell a child, yell at a child, um, then you lost, you, 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 you basically lost because what you're doing is 
putting out an expectation without demonstrating what you're asking the child to do. Now, in the previous generations, we could do that. Do as I say, uh, not as I do. And in these today, the children have the vocabulary, they have the intelligence. Um, and as adults, we now need to rise um, rise above those limiting emotions that we experience ourselves. And so the, the, the proof, uh, Dr. Lenora, has been in my ability to continue to see the growth and development in my children. So when they're able to have emotional conversations and talk about how they feel, as well as continue to engage um, in the conversation, and not just in my children, but in the Freedom School program, we also follow a lot of social emotional principles around how we engage these children with love and respect. And after seeing that program for 20 years, the, the personal evidence that I can say uh, of that approach is in the dozens of young adults now across the country that I could point to and say, we, we worked with that person and now they're doing great things. They're, they're, they're my colleagues. I have colleagues now that are also executive directors of child serving organizations and they were young people in programs that I worked in. So uh, I, got a lot of, I got a lot of examples. I'm not gonna show you any research, but I'll show We're not gonna challenge that notion right now. Come on. I mean, an example of two people. I mean, the children that you've raised, the children you've been looking at across the nation. We talk about hundreds, yeah. Hundreds the number of uneducated black children, the number of black children in prison, and we have other issues. I don't know whether that would support, but that's not why we're here. I want to ask you a, a question about um, punishment. There's a question from one of our listeners. Do you believe in punishment, and what kind of punishment do you think is effective? Uh, obviously, the question always boils down to corporal punishment versus standing in the corner, timeout, and the other things that are available to parents. So again, punishment is um, was something that we relied on when we didn't really have um, the emotional wherewithal to really have a conversation with our child. And punishment really is a paradigm, just the whole paradigm uh, that really comes from slavery, that punishment works uh, is what we learned from slavery, is what we were taught when we were enslaved. And so my idea of having conversations with your children around accountability and around what their responsibilities are, then you can have carrot in the stick, right? And so the stick might be natural consequences, natural consequences of, well, you didn't do this, so no, you don't get to have that. Um, but <clears throat> going out of your way to impose a difficult situation and, 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 and undue stress, I'm not gonna knock that. But what I am going to say is when we're working with children and we punish them and they don't understand what they did wrong and they don't agree with the punishment, we do more harm than good. And as parents, we can get compliance. We can get, right, you, you, I'm going to punish you and you're going to follow that punishment. But are we getting that emotional and spiritual and developmental outcome that we're actually shooting for in our children? And, and, and we have literally no evidence that beating our children works. Again, just like my example, the only example you have that beating works is, well, it got me off the hook when I needed to have, do what I had to do, right? Well, no, no, I have, I have other discussions about that. Uh, but I think there are still more important topics. In today's environment, you know, we're always being challenged by the issue of racism, police violence. Well, what do you, what do you talk, how do you talk to your children 
about racism? How do you talk to your children uh, about um, uh, the police? So from the time my children could walk and fashion their hand and a stick in the, in the, in the form of a gun, we started having conversations with them about race and about police brutality in America. Um, it's not a single conversation. You know, after George Floyd happened, a lot of people talked about the talk, or we talk about when you're, you're, you're mostly black boys come of a certain age, there's a talk. But in my household, it's always been an ongoing conversation because you're not just talking about racism and police brutality. You're talking about how they conduct themselves. You're talking about how they see other people. You're talking about how they treat other people, regardless of the fact that racism exists. Um, and so it is a conversation that needs to be integrated into their experience at school, their experience at the park, their experience in the swim team, their experience with everything includes a conversation about race. So what do you say? What do you tell them? I ask them. I say, what happened? What's going on? Well, what do you think? And the conversation is really guided by the information they give me. Um, and so it's, it, it really isn't a, a type of conversation where I have to sit down and say, this is the world, son. This is what police do. This is the government. This is why they do this. This is why they do that. It's more of a question, well, it's, it's a give and take. Well, how do you understand um, this to work, right? Because you have to find out where they're at, where they're at in terms of how they're thinking about school, how they're thinking about society, how they're thinking about their life. And as adults, we, we can assume, we, we know how they see themselves, but it's always best to ask them first. Now, obviously, in your work, you, you've dealt with the issue of the father himself and talking about social and emotional challenges. What are some of those challenges and, and what advice do you give to fathers, especially those fathers who are either raising their children by themselves or are single fathers where the child's living with the mother or are they dividing uh, uh, coverage or responsibility? Well, the challenges are pretty straightforward uh, in terms of you got to get out there and work and, and take care of your children. And then you, like I mentioned earlier, there's a bigger expectation these days for the father to have to be not only physically available, but emotionally available. So if someone's in, you know, comes home from work, right? In the past, right? The, the dad came home from work, dinner was already in the oven. They ate their dinner and went to bed. Whereas now the father can come home and may have to cook dinner and then engage with his kids, right? And so you can come home, start cooking dinner and the kid wants to engage. So there's a lot of multitasking. There's a lot of finite energy that we have as parents and we have to allocate that energy to the different tasks every day. And you, you, a lot of times being able to listen to the kid talk for an hour is it, it, there's not enough energy for that, right? I can listen to you for five minutes or 10 minutes right now, and then I got to go take care of some other stuff, right? So uh, there's a time issue, there's a multitask challenge, and, and then there's just the overall negative stereotypes and stereotype threat of being a black father and parenting while you're outside, while you're out in the world and, and getting the looks and getting the treatment uh, that somehow you're not quite as competent of a parent as, as other other groups. Our special guest is Dr. Michelle Payne. We're talking about fatherhood. We're really talking uh, from a different perspective. We're talking about the emotional components that fathers need 
to be effective and the ways in which things have changed uh, so that uh, fathers have to play somewhat of a different role. I mean, I'm like so many parents. My father didn't really uh, talk to us about his decision making. I, um, he asked me how I was doing. I use very objective parameters of whether or not I was being uh, successful or not. But what you're saying is that uh, fathers need to do some things themselves in terms of getting themselves structured uh, emotionally in order to be effective. How do, how do fathers do that, though? Especially if you're a single father, uh, your mother's somewhere else. Uh, often in many of uh, my experiences as a pediatrician is that uh, a lot of times the mother spends half her time dogging the father. Father spends half the time dogging the mother. How does the father overcome that? So that's an excellent question. As fathers, right, as men, um, we learn anger more than we learn vulnerability, right? And so as a father, you really got to learn vulnerability uh, with your with your children. And as a black father, we have to create space to let our guard down, right? There's this hyper vigilance as, as, a, as a black male, as a black father. Uh, and there are spaces and times where we need on a regular basis, daily, weekly, to let our guard down because uh, that's, you know, won't get into all the problems with diet, sleep, uh, uh, addictive behaviors, hypertension and high blood pressure, all the things that come from not taking care of ourselves, from overworking ourselves, from burdening, overburdening ourselves with our regular responsibilities. So um, <clears throat> there's creating space to let your guard down and actually taking care of your health and wellness, right? A doctor's visit, uh, talking to a mental health professional every now and then, and, you know, working with diet, exercise, all of these things help you be in the right mind space to be emotionally available to your kids and emotionally flexible. Have I yelled at my kids? Of course. Have I went back and thought about it 10 minutes later and apologized, said, this is why I was really upset. I do that too, right? So the difference is we're, it's not that we're not going to make mistakes as black fathers. It's not that we're never going to yell at our kids. We're never going to get upset, frustrated, say, say something that's really not the most uplifting thing to our children. The important piece is to be aware in that moment of what's going on for you. And then if I can explain what was going on, apologize and still reinforce the expectation then they've learned to do the same. Well, I got a quick question. I got a quick question. So sometimes, and, and there there's a, seems to be a delicate balance of what you're talking about, because if there is some research that suggests that having your, because I said so, is an appropriate answer sometimes, right, to for a child, because it establishes you as an authority, because if we offer too many explanations for our decisions, why we're doing this, why we're doing that, then the child, we set an expectation that the child is going to expect a, an explanation for every decision that you make. And that's not necessarily the best way to, to navigate as a parent. Sometimes you have to establish that line and say, I am the authority. Now I'm going to, I'm going to include you in that, in that decision-making process from time to time, but it's not a requirement for me to do it. How do you walk that line in terms of being responsive to your child's emotional needs, appealing to their emotion, talking about how you're disappointed and frustrated, giving them emotionally appropriate language to be able to pair with their feelings as they're moving forward, but also establishing yourself as the parent that says, I'm an authority in this home. And so there's going to be some decisions that I'm going to make as a parent that you might not be happy about, but you're going to have to deal with because I'm the authority. You just said it. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, that's it that's literally it it's like hey you know what 
that's great that you had that question. I'll answer that question when we get in the car. That was mine. When we get in the car, I'll answer the question. And it's okay that you can ask questions, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. It's going to be a negotiation of whether we're going to do this or not. Right. Right. So yes, I let them ask questions and yes, I, and, and, and they can expect to ask questions, but they don't, they can't demand an answer. They can't, ex- they can't, you know, fall out until they get an answer. So it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to answer that question, but you're good. This is what you're going to do. And then you're going to do this and then you're going to do this. Then I'm going to answer your question. And then we can talk about it later. Right. So right. there also may be, and everybody parents differently. Everybody got their own strategy style. Some people come off uh, a, a lot, a lot more firm. Some people come off softer, more caring. You got to do your own style as a parent, but you'll never go wrong explaining why you're not going to negotiate. Why sometimes you, right. we, you can ask questions and sometimes I don't even want you to ask a question. I, I, I want you to hold that question until later, right? Unless it's a safety issue. And so these are all things that allow us to still parent in the style that we feel most comfortable. We're not, we're not doing away with all those values. We're just making some adjustments in terms of recognizing and acknowledging when we were growing up, we know a lot more than what our parents allowed us to discuss with them or what they led, led us to believe they thought we knew, but we knew it, didn't we? Yes. got a couple of really good questions. Good question about would the style be, uh, would the style, would your parenting style change if you were raising girls? And I and I think that's a that's an uh, interesting question. And I'm gonna give you my response to that, and then uh, Dr. Cho. Well, as a father of four girls, I'm gonna give you my response. And you can give your response. <laughs> so I, I would say I would say this. Um, the answer for me is yes, and the reason why it is this because I have I have both a daughter and a son. For my daughter, I was trying to model the type of man that she was looking at. Uh, marrying somebody, I'm trying to model the type of man that she would want to be with long-term in her life. So I'm trying to show that in my relationship with my wife, and I'm trying to have that type of relationship with her. With my son, I'm trying to show him how to be a man in this world, and that is a little bit different. I'm not, he's seeing how to treat a woman through me and how I treat my wife, but I'm also, I also have different responsibilities in terms of him because I know that the challenges of being a black man is different. Not saying it's better or worse, just different than being a black woman. And so there, I see as a as the father that my role with my, you know, children and their different genders is different. What are your thoughts? What are my thoughts? Well, I think when you know, and not, not to get into the word, right? The parenting style. The parenting style to me would be, I investigate, then I have a conversation, then I make a decision, then I reinforce that decision. That'd be the parenting style. The um, how you how you actually parent each child, if you if you would parent your children differently because of their gender, well, I think there's some obvious yeses in terms of you're addressing, you know, a, a, a boy. Um, about the ways of him being a male, identified as a male and vice versa. But in terms of the emotional role, I, I don't, and, and, and we got, we got, we got doctor only knows girls. We got doctor only knows boys. And then you in the middle, you got, you know, both. Right. And so, and so um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, my opinion on, I'm not going to instruct. I don't think parenting is something there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do parenting. 
right? right? It, 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 you know, it, it really is legitimately, uh, you got to find what works for you. And as far as, I think the important thing I want to say about uh, what we both should do with boys and girls, no matter what, is as fathers, we need to model emotional uh, flexibility, right? right? Because again, um, emotional intelligence is something that in, in my organization, Community Youth Outreach, is what my participants talk about in terms of staying alive and, and not getting into conflict and, and, and all of those issues that we know come with uh, raising children, co-parenting. So, I have, you know, I have a lot to say about this because I was a single father of four girls for five years and my philosophy was somewhat different. You know, I wanted my girls to grow up to be strong individuals. I didn't raise them to model or to make selections based upon uh, what um, I thought would make good male role models. I wanted my girls to be well-educated, hardworking, and tough. Tough enough to deal with some of the realities of the world. Uh, I didn't put my hands on my girls uh, unless, of course, to defend myself on, on occasions. But I didn't try to, to model with them and to put in front of them role models of women who were strong and independent uh, in, in terms of decision-making. So I didn't really think that I would have raised a son really any differently. Uh, I think uh, that girls face hearted. Girls have to, and in my estimation, and may, this may be uh, a, 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 a sexist uh, statement, that, that women have faced much tougher challenges in life than men do. And I think they have to have the skill sets to do that. And so I looked at my, I looked at raising them uh, as a as a role model uh, for the characters that they needed to be strong and effective individuals. And I don't think I raised them any differently. I was concerned differently. Now that's true. I was worried about what they would do here and there. But I think that putting good role models in front of them uh, and being a father that uh, expected from them the same sets of responsibility and success as I did, uh, as I would for boys. And so I didn't have, uh, I, I don't have, didn't have a different philosophy other than that. I do think that when you start to think about black families, they tend to treat boys differently from girls. They tend to require less responsibility. They tend to require, they tend to allow more freedom of, of, of action than they do with girls. I mean, and then here's what I see in my own practice, Dr. Payne. Uh, and Mr. Dean, I have two sets of, of children, a boy and a girl in the same family. This happens more often than not. So well, what's, what's, what's happening with Shaquilla? Oh, she's at NYU on the summer program. Uh, she's going to London to get her PhD. So, well, what's going on with Herman? I don't want to talk about him. And I think there's something wrong in how we treat black males as parents as opposed to how we treat black females. Well, I, I, I have some, some things to say about that in support of the fact that boys are significantly more disadvantaged in plugging into the systems uh, to be successful long-term as adults, right? I think uh, Black girls are better positioned, um, but absolutely right. We could go on all, all day long about the unique specific challenges of Black girls and the unique specific challenges of raising Black boys. But overall, um, as Black parents, recognizing, understanding the challenges that come with, as a Black father, the lack of emotional range. I, I keep repeating that. Um, and again, crying 
crying, uh, not necessarily in front of your kids or with your kids, although there's nothing wrong with that if you have the emotional wherewithal to have a conversation with your children so that they feel safe. But just being able to be emotional as a man, have an emotion, experience emotion, by yourself, around your friends, right? Um, But going through the range of emotions so that you can support your child, right? So if you're raising a girl, she starts crying. You say, come here, baby. You know, you're raising a boy and he starts crying. Do you do the same? Do you say, come here, son. Give me a hug. Listen, yeah, I, I know, I know you're, you're, you're feeling sad right now, right? Because when somebody cries, that's usually the emotion. Or do we tell our boys, uh-uh, 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 you better dry it up. You better dry it up because we, we're not doing that here, right? And we think... That's supposed to strengthen the boy and we're supposed to protect the girl. And, you know, sometimes it, it's not going to actually work out that way. Well, you know, here, here's the, you, you, you're going to have to come back because a lot of notions that we need to be talking about. Just, you, you make, a, you make a, a, a big point about uh, fathers being able to cry. Uh, you know, I think one of the things about a father is that you have to project some stability some solidity, you know, some confidence. And I think when you break down and cry in front of your children, you have to have a really good reason. I don't think that you can do, I don't think, I never felt that I had to always express my own emotions in front of my children. And you seem to feel that that's critically important to being a successful parent. Uh, and so consequently, you, you, make, you make the point about crying. Why do you think that's so important? Because it's a human emotion that we all have, right? So the idea of being angry, if you say, you know, sometimes if your kid is frustrated, you know, as a black father, you got to go out and let them get that anger out, right? Just get it out, right? We're going to put them in football. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. We masculinize our men and we don't have a problem doing that. But we have a problem with emotional balance, right? Crying, if you're, if you, I'm not talking about uh, the, the burnt the potatoes. I'm talking about a death in the family. I'm talking about, right, the dog died or, you know, something really sad happened in the world. And the kid's talking about it and they're crying about it, right? To be uh, available and to be present and to be emotionally able to, even if you're not, and I, I didn't say break down and cry. It could, it could be a very uh, normal, not, you know, uh, crazy situation just to have a conversation that brings about tears and sadness. And I would, I would say that that makes the child feel safer as long as it is not a volatile experience for the child. It's just another emotion, just like they see their mothers cry and they don't see their mothers as less uh, strong and stable in their lives. So uh, there was an interesting question in the comments. And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to structure it like this in terms of uh, that talk. And I'm not talking about the talk of the police brutality. I'm talking about the talk about sexuality and when they start hitting puberty and how do you have that discussion? And if you're noticing, if you're starting to notice that your child might have some homosexual tendencies, how do you have that discussion to, to try to normalize it with your child, especially when we're talking about a, a community, a, a, a black community that is tends to be more phobic than accepting of people's uh, having uh, uh, sexual orientation, uh, being homosexual. Mm-hmm. So, 
Absolutely. How do you, how do you have that? How do you have that conversation to where it, you're you're accepting of your child, even if you have some some personal feelings that might be a little bit different. Thank you. This is an extremely important question, especially for Black children. All children are highest, uh, most likely to be kicked out the house for coming out and, and, be, and being gay to their parents. And so um, the best way, right, is to get educated yourself on, on, on the topic, um, talk to the school and the teacher, depending on what grade your child is in. They, they they might have stuff planned. And so if you work with your teachers and your educational institution on what what they're what they're gonna do, what what they plan on doing, let's say middle school, let's say this is seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade. Well, the middle school is already planning to have conversations. So if you work with the school and have follow-up conversations, so you guys talk about this. Well, what do you think? How do you feel about your body? How do you feel about who you are, right? And if there's a, a shared vocabulary and a baseline of knowledge and information, then you can have that conversation so that they feel supported and safe to actually tell you how they feel. And I think sometimes you have to depend also on your doctors, your, your, your health professionals. I can tell you that we have many, many more children in our practice now who uh, come out and say that they prefer parties of the same sex. And so we have to just talk to them and advise them on what they face and, and some of the challenges that are uh, in that situation. I think that's a, a mm -hmm. very timely question because there's so many, uh, you'd be amazed at how, how common that is. Um, and so um, I think that we really need as health professionals, people like you and other people to give us a bit more in the way of instruction about how to handle that particular conversation. And, and, and I would simply add, you know, to book in that, that you know, that intervention to, to let the child know, uh, hey, you know, because we understand that people have people experience gender a bunch of different ways. And sometimes parents accept that. Sometimes parents don't accept that. I'm a parent that will accept whoever you are. And if you say that first and, and, and I love you, I'm always going to love you. I accept, but. Um, let's have a conversation about your identity, about the things you're learning in school and about the things that you're experiencing uh, as you grow and develop. So always establishing that you love them and you're going to accept them because that's a, that could be a big fear if they are uh, feeling different than, than the, the quote-unquote binary. We're coming close to the end of our time, so I want to get some other concepts out there so we can really, kind of really explore this conversation uh, further. I think... The, one of the challenges as a black parent is um, there's an acceleration and, and there's been studies that have done this in terms of how society views black children as being older, perceived as being older than mm -hmm. their biological age. And so we have black girls being perceived as being older and treating as such, black boys, particularly, especially in, in the judicial system, being perceived and being treated as being older. And so as a parent, because we understand this, we tend to try to accelerate through their childhood to get them to understand and accept the responsibilities that society is going to place upon them. And then that could stunt their emotional development because we're not allowing children to be children because we're trying to parentify them too early to meet society standards of black children. How do we overcome that? How do we protect our children from the societal standards and let them be children and develop through their course of life naturally? That's a big question. And so if as parents, we are allowing our kids to be kids, 
Like I had to get a backyard to let my kid run around with a stick and pretend like he's in the, in, in the, right. This is still, you know, something, but that's not necessarily adultification, right? It's, 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 Hey, you just can't do these things. You just going right. to have a childhood where you're restricted in a lot of ways. And so um, as parents, you, you, you know, one of the things I learned is if you don't want your kids um, doing something, you don't, you don't, restrict them from that <laughs> so if they want to play with guns and you say you'll never have a gun in this house well that that's one thing they're gonna get as soon as they get a chance right well you right. give them the nerf gun and you give them to this so there needs to be a way we let kids be kids there needs to be a way that we and and as the adults working with the institutions we try to might not make it so dangerous when our kids make a mistake because um, all kids make mistakes, right? And and they don't have to pay for it with their life. And so the parentification of children is when they have to parent themselves, right? And and so that's also part of it is poverty. And, and you know, I'm at work. I can't be three places at one time. And so parents have historically and traditionally um, had to had to make sacrifices, and thus the kids were sacrificed with supervision or uh, what have you. And so it, it's very difficult, but it really is about leaning into the child no matter what age they are and allowing what's appropriate for that age to happen. Yeah. And, but, but, but as Black parents, we have to do more to create the environment for them to be safe. To, to have that type of expression. Yeah, I, I remember trying to overly, you know, police my son's behavior when we were out in public, you know, so I wouldn't let him run around and jump like boys like to do and grab things and, and explore as much because I was more concerned about how others would perceive him. And so I was like, you got to be in line, stay here with me, walk in line, stop jumping around, stop acting fool, whatever. And my wife would get on me and she'd just be like, you know, let him be a child, let him go and play and, and explore, you, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm more concerned about the society and how, as he continues to mature and get older, that how society looks at him. So we, we, you're right, we do have to be better about that as, as, as fathers and as parents. And, and, you know, the first thing I, I did as a, as a father, as a black father was, I exposed my children to as many other black men as possible. Right. So that it's it's not just, oh, they have a father. Oh, I'm a, I'm a father. No, it's going to be normal for the I grew. I know I know dozens and dozens of dynamite fathers. Right. My, my cousin, I, got, I, I know nothing but great fathers. And so it's something that, that you can also surround your children with, not just fathers. But I, I mentioned father figures. Right. Other right. uncles. Um, big cousins, big brothers, big sisters, right? If we have a situation where the mom's not there, um, there's mother figures. So we bring in parental figures to supplement. So that's another strategy when we're trying to keep our kids safe and we don't want them out there um, being exposed. Yeah, yeah we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation. We have to have you back because there are a number of issues we really didn't get into in any depth. But I have one question that we're going to start our next conversation with. I always tell parents, parents take too much responsibility uh, when children, too much credit when children do well and too much responsibility when they go bad. Yes. And I think that that's something that many parents uh, need to have and we should have that discussion. But we really want to thank you for joining us. I think that you do bring to it another element that, uh, that as parents, we need to probably share 
more of ourselves with our children. I think those of us who kind of grew up in the 60s, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm 60s. Well, yeah, let's just say 60s, let's leave it there. For those of us who, who grew up in a different era, had a different style of parenting. And I think that many of us who are have kind of come through the process uh, would probably not be willing to change too much of it. Um, but I do think that your perspective is good for fathers to hear uh, that they can share that, give them permission to share themselves more with their children. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thank Payne. You. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ellis. I enjoyed it. And I'll see you. Mr. Dean for keeping everything together. <laughs> I'm Mignon Lenore for producing our program. But most of all, I'd like to thank those of you who have joined us. We hope that you join us every week. Remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. As always, it has been a pleasure. To our fans, thank you so much for listening to the Black Doctors Speak podcast. We are a weekly show, and we are sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Black Doctors Speak, and on Twitter, at Black Docs. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay safe.